If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Rachel. Rachel's from Adelaide and has a gorgeous 18-month-old son called Arlo. Rachel has a really uncanny way of clearly articulating all of these thoughts that were in my head that I didn't realize were there. So I hope a lot of you resonate as much as I did with this interview. So welcome to the podcast, Rachel. I'm really excited to have you on today. And I'd love if we could start and just understand your journey and what led to you deciding to become a solo mum by choice. Uh, Thanks. So I don't actually remember how I decided to do it. I kind of just fell into it. Okay. And I think I thought I was the first person in the world to have ever thought of this brilliant idea <laughs> because every time, you know, I would break up with a guy, I would be like, you know what, I could just, I could just have a baby on my own, you know. Wouldn't that be a great idea? And it was one of those drunken sort of flippant comments that I would make that eventually I just decided to do. And it was only when I decided to actually uh, look into it that I realised it was a whole movement that was <laughs> happening without me that I could have joined a decade earlier. Um, and and I out. wish I had it. Yeah. You know, I, but I, yeah, I wish I had it. So if, if I had, if I had known that there were women actually doing this, um, I, I would have done it 10 years earlier. And whereas I ended up doing it because all the other things weren't working. I was married for three months I was engaged for a year to a different person. You know, I really tried hard to do the nuclear family thing, um, but it, it just was never for me. And and I I knew that so long ago, but I just didn't um, didn't didn't realize there were other alternatives that were normal. You know? Yeah, it does feel yeah. like it hasn't been that long that it's been like a normal option though. So maybe if you tried ten years ago, it wouldn't have been. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Maybe always done it. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. But yeah, so no, I, I honestly just fell into it, and and it, it started with me um, calling a lawyer and asking, it, you know, if I could um, talk to them. Was there a, a way to have a legal contract with a man um, who was just a friend? I just wanted to to um, have sex and make a baby, but I wanted there to be a legal contract saying that he wasn't the father. And was that a thing? 
Yeah. And she said, sure, but it's called sperm donation, Rachel, and you should just <laughs> pay someone to do that. And I just, I don't know why that hadn't quite occurred to me. And, yeah, it was, so it was actually a lawyer that sort of more suggested that there were just normal ways of normal processes that people had already established that I should look into. Yeah. Um, and, and then when I rang a fertility clinic, they told me about the uh, Solo Mums by Choice Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And then I went there and realised that there are all these other women already doing my brilliant idea. So, yeah, and that's sort of where it started. Okay. And so you decided to pursue this. What steps did you take? Yeah. So, um, After so the lawyer, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well, so initially I still wanted to use known uh, a known donor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm adopted myself and I don't know my paternal side, just the maternal. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I felt like I wanted my child to know both sides yeah. and be able to have sort of like an uncle figure, I guess. Um, and so initially, yeah, I had a couple of different friends who were willing to be donors and I went to a fertility clinic and I had their sperm tested, my eggs tested, and um, it was just wonderful luck that um, the fertility clinic that I went to made a huge error. And, yeah, huge. Um, And so it wasn't working. I had a few different surgeries and um, I did IVF and it didn't work. And then by accident, I did my ACL, so I I did my knee. Mm -hmm. And I had to get surgery for that. And the uh, orthopedic, gosh, I hope that's the right word, surgeon said, um, you know, what medications have you been taking recently? And I said, oh, I'll have to get you a list yeah. uh, because I've been doing IVF. And when he looked at the list, he was like, why, why are you playing so much sport? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you can't play this much sport and, uh, and be taking this sort of medication. We don't know. If what that's doing to um to your body and no one had sort of suggested that to me before no Um, and he said well there's still research in you know in the works but he was quite shocked that I was like I would inject um for IVF and then go off and play a game of soccer um which is how I ended up doing my knee but he sort of said that that seems a very strange thing to do which was shocking to me and anyway, and then he looked at all the medication and he said, gosh, I, I don't know that you should be taking this much medication. And he was, you know, a knee surgeon. Yeah. But he just sort of said, this doesn't look right. And if he hadn't have said that, then I wouldn't have stepped back and looked at it and gone, yeah, I don't have any fertility problems. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And there was just, yeah, a glitch in the system, something that the doctor overlooked and had thought that there was a problem that I didn't have. Oh, and wow. Yeah, and because it was so upsetting for me, um, I finally did what my sister had been telling me to do from the start, and I used a, an anonymous donor from America, mm-hmm. and it worked straight away. So I kind of felt like I got pregnant straight away with this anonymous donor from overseas um, through a different clinic. Yeah, But I kind of feel like I went on this massive um, medical journey with IVF and then another surgery and um and then knee surgery mixed in there and I think I just made it all to be something bigger than it needed to be yeah 
Yeah. Um, when actually, yeah, if I could go back now, I'd skip, you know, calling a lawyer and um, doing all the testing. And I would just say, I'd like to buy some sperm, please. Yeah. Hook me up. Well, yeah. Especially if, the, if there wasn't any fertility issues and if you had no reason to have to go down the IVF route straight away as well, then you could have just done IUO and it could have been a lot cheaper and simpler yeah. that way. Totally. And I, I think I think it's because a lot of clinics, from my understanding now, they're because solo mums, it is still a new thing. Um, they still look at when people come to an IVF or fertility clinic, usually it's because they're having problems. Mm. So there's an assumption that there's a problem. So when I went to this IVF or fertility clinic, when I went to a fertility clinic, in their minds, they're an IVF clinic, you know? So they sort of went straight to what's the problem. But the problem was just that I didn't have any sperm. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, I made my whole journey to making my son was a much more complicated affair than it ever needed to be. And I'm really glad that I ended up with him, that that complicated mess got me that particular, that specific little kid. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but I think that we're all learning how to do this and it's actually a much simpler process than we're all I think you know often doing so you said that you were trying to use a known donor and you had people that were willing to to be that donor for you so were you using their sperm that first round of IVF that didn't work yeah so there were three rounds that didn't work okay and that was um with a known donor so a friend um, and how do you feel now? Because you obviously wanted to have a non-donor so you'd have that person in your life and be that kind of uncle figure potentially. Mm. Now you don't have that with an anonymous donor. How does that make you feel? Oh, so relieved. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, um, I have now had to thank and apologise to my sister and tell her how right she was um, just all the time um, because she kept saying that, no, you want to you you want it to be your child. You don't want anyone else to be giving you opinions or have any legal or otherwise um, rights. And what? So why would you do that? And she said, if you've got someone there, you know, you'll naturally just gravitate to them when there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And you'll naturally, you know, if like you know, when my son was very um, little and he had a you know, an illness, you know, really it was nothing. But if I had known the donor, I would have called him. I know I would have called his mom. Like I would have been like, look, I really need to know. Please, can you, can I talk to your mom, you know? And I would have made it such a mess. Yeah. So hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm very lucky now that, um, and for the record, my sister was right you can just make this a much simpler affair than it has to it doesn't have to be complicated it can be as simple as going to the doctor saying that you would like to be a solo mum by choice and going to a fertility clinic you don't have to jump through a million hoops um like I did unnecessarily I definitely overcomplicated it so knowing what you know now after going through two clinics, what would you recommend that anyone going into this ask a clinic when they're starting out to make sure they don't, I guess, have the same experience that you did yeah. if they don't have no infertility issues? Yeah, um, I think 
the that I would just ask what what is your success rate mm-hmm. um, and how how quickly can that be achieved because at the end of the day you are paying for it I used my super to pay for it mm-hmm. so I didn't I, I um, just filled out a bunch of forms I didn't pay um, like there are companies you can pay to do that for you and I didn't do that I just got some super and I used it I think I could have spent half the amount of money if yeah. I had just said to the clinic, what is the quickest way to do this? But I felt kind of clinical and rude asking that. Right. You know, I was trying to be very loving and um, you know, thinking about the what's the best for my my unborn child and their um, you know, the story that they're going to hear. No. What, what I needed was just what's the quickest, easiest way so this doesn't drag on for two years, yeah. which it did. Um, but it, it could have been over in about three months. But I really stretched that. I stretched it on with testing and so much testing. Um, but when, when you want to have a baby with a man, you don't say, well, you know, let's go get lots of tests done. Let's have an invasive surgery and see if I have any fertility issues and then we'll have sex. You know, you don't do that. So I should have just said, what's the quickest way to get this done? How um, old were you when you went to for your first appointment with the old clinic? Yeah, 30, well, I think 30, gosh. The first time I went to the GP, I was 34. But I think by the time I got to a fertility clinic, I was 35. So it's not like you were even in the fully geriatric assume that there are some fertility issues going and you you are still no borderline. no and that was sort of the missing link in it that when I did finally get to a um to a fertility clinic in order to get the referral you've got to have something that says that you've got fertility issues hmm. and that was sort of where I went wrong the the doctor had never had a solo mum by choice come to him and I suppose in his mind, inaccurately, he thought that the reason I hadn't done this with a man was because I couldn't. Um, and also because you do have to fill in some paperwork that suggests that you have fertility issues um, so that you can access your super, for example. So I had to have the fertility doctor and my GP fill in a form that said that I had um, chronic depression um or chronic anxiety I think it was one of them Mm -hmm. it had to be one of those and I think we went with chronic anxiety in order to be able to access my super so they make it hard don't they yeah you know there were lots of hoops to jump through um and and so in that it sort of just got lost that there was actually nothing wrong with me Mm, there were some boxes to tick to yeah, and we ended up just doing so many tests and the, the testing, just looking for, you know, how many eggs I had and all those things. It's great that we can do that. But I didn't, I didn't need to know any of that. There was no reason to suggest hmm. that there was a problem. I just needed some sperm. <laughs> so yeah. when you went to the new clinic and you just went to get your sperm, what was the process you went through <laughs> to select your donor? In the oh, that was so life? easy. So once... Once I, I, once I started the process that I should have started right from the beginning, um, it was as quick as I went into the fertility clinic. I said, I would like to have a baby. 
um, I would like to use whatever the highest quality sperm you have is. Mm-hmm. And the clinic only gave me three choices. So they gave me three profiles right there and then. So they went to a filing cabinet, they pulled out three um, little booklets and on the front was a picture of three little toddlers. So each had a picture of a toddler. The first toddler looked just like me as a toddler. Mm-hmm. The second toddler didn't look anything like me. And the third toddler was sort of in the middle, um, but I was already sold on the first. I just wanted a kid that looked like me. Yeah. And um, the clinic had said, these are the three highest quality sperm that we have. This will get you pregnant, you know, theoretically, statistically the quickest. And so that was it. I didn't even read the profiles. Um, I just went based on these three pictures and went with the one that looked most like me. It was a gut feeling. And they said, you do actually have to read these. It's like the terms and conditions. You do have to read about these people before we will just let you um, take one. So I had to take them home. And then uh, I only actually read the, um, the one that I wanted. Yeah. So complete confirmation bias. I, I read it and I said, yeah, he sounds great. Um, and I didn't read the others. I threw them in the bin. Um, and that was it. That's how I chose. And it was just that easy. It was just that easy. And, um, and then I um, did, did the injections and uh, went in, had an egg collection, did the transfer, pregnant straight away. Did you end up with some other embryos in the freezer as well? One. One. And um, I had them both genetically tested. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, before they went in. And so the first one, the one that created my son um, was perfect. And the second one might have had something not um, right about it, but it was other, it seemed okay. But I ended up deciding what the day that my son was born, I sent them an email and asked them to donate it to science, which was the option, the only option. It was just destroy it or donate it to science. And so it was donated because I think it's about $500 a a year to keep them on ice. And I only want one child. So um, the the second he was born, um, I've got you. You all I need. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my, my, um, a friend sort of said, you know, don't you want to keep it on ice, you know, just in case? And I was like, that's suggesting that maybe my son won't make it. And, and I, don't, I don't want to keep that insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so a sibling I, was never a consideration for you? It's not something you're looking no, at? Not at all. I, um, yeah, I never really wanted more than one anyway. I, you know, even if I'd had a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, definitely not now. And, and I don't want a backup plan, you know, and I can't afford it. I'm not going to pay for that. But, no, I don't, I don't want it because I think if my son, if somehow, and I've got a big mouth, if I ever let it slip that I'd kept, a, you know, an embryo on ice um, in case you didn't make it, uh, <laughs> I think that would be awful to find out. So I didn't. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it. I think most people think of it as siblings, not as a replacement one. So. Yeah. Well, I knew he wasn't going to get a sibling. There was yeah. just not going to be any consideration of that. So for me, it would have only been as a backup. As a replacement. Mm. And um, I didn't need that. So you got pregnant pretty easily eventually. <laughs> How was the yeah. pregnancy? After a couple of years of just stopping about and failures, 
Um, yeah, look, the pregnancy was, I think, just a normal pregnancy. I swelled up like I'd been bitten by a million bees at the end. And I begged the obstetrician to induce me, and he did. Um, so I was induced at 38 weeks. Mm-hmm. And the plan had always been to be induced at 39 weeks. Yeah. But I cried sufficiently at 36 weeks that he said we could go to 38 um, because my son was huge and I was just ginormous. Um, and I couldn't do anything. Like I was just... It was horrible um, the last maybe month. And, yeah, and then I did try to birth naturally. And when I say birth naturally, I, um, I had an epidural before there was even pain. So they induced me and then I didn't sleep all night because I was just excited. And then in the morning I said, oh, I've got a bit of a tummy ache, I guess. And my obstetrician said, would you like the drugs now? And I was like, really now? Okay, sure. And, uh None so of them I, tell I you that you could have it beforehand. Yeah. Like I waited until the contractions got to a certain point and I was like, I want it. And they're like, you could have had I mean, a few hours ago. And it's like, why did you not tell me that? <laughs> well, my obstetrician, uh, I, like I loved him. I loved him. He was worth uh, every, um, every penny. Um, I'm really glad that I went, you know, I mean, I had to change my health, you know, my private health cover so that I could have, so that it was subsidized somewhat. And he, you know, it did cost several thousands of dollars, but it, it was worth it. He he never weighed me, even when I got just ginormous. So I I normally weigh 75 kilos mm-hmm. and I gave birth at 118 kilos, wow. um, which is just phenomenal. Um, and I lost like 15 kilos almost immediately. Um, yeah. It was a lot of water. But... Um, but even when I got ginormous, he he never commented on that. Do you know, he he was never because he I didn't need to hear it from him. Mm-hmm. I you know I would waddle in and it was obvious. But you know he never made me feel bad about myself. He always made me feel really empowered. Like I could you you want to do this naturally? Sure. You want drugs? Sure. Um, it was he was just so easygoing and kind and patient. He was wonderful. Did you take him from a recommendation or was it just luck or did you interview a few? Yeah, it was a recommendation. So um, I announced that I was pregnant when after two weeks. So the day that I got the blood test um, from the fertility clinic, I um, sent an email around at school saying, guess what, I'm pregnant to (laughs) not the whole school that I work at, but to just like, you know, most people that I liked. And um and a very lovely teacher said, oh, good. Well, you should call my obstetrician because he books out really quickly. And since you're not holding back on announcing that you're pregnant after two weeks, um, now's the time. And I'm really lucky that he was available because mm. most people don't know that they're pregnant after two weeks. And, yeah, and I got in with him. But um, I love yeah, the so confidence him- that you announced at two weeks. It's brilliant. Yeah. Well, you know, I announced it two weeks because... Lots of people had, like my journey had gone for two years. I'd really dragged a lot of people through IVF with me. Mm-hmm. Um, most people go home, I think, uh, non-solo moms go home and whinge to their partner about doing IVF. But I, I had no one but my cat to whinge to. So I whinge to everyone at work every day. Um, those people were on the journey. So most people knew, you know, 
I mean, I made it very clear when I was absent, why I was absent. I was really transparent about it. And so um, when I had my transfer, it, like lots of people knew. So for that whole two week wait every day. So they were just like, as anxious as you waiting yeah. for the results. <laughs> yeah. And, and also then if, if I had lost him, I would have wanted to lean on people. Yeah. And uh, those were the people who I wanted to, would have wanted to lean on. I, I wouldn't have wanted to conceal it. I would have wanted to be angry and cry and all those things. And I would have wanted people to give me the compassion that I needed. Um, so, yeah, I was always really upfront about it. Yeah, and I love also, that. I, I think, yeah, I think it's so traditional to wait until the whole first trimester, blah, blah. But I think that makes sense if you're conceived like naturally with a partner. But if you're going through IVF, everything is so structured, you know exactly what's going on. I think I was a lot more open when I did it with Lexi as well. And I think I told quite a few people at two weeks as well, actually. So not yeah. through email, but yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I told lots of people to their face, but I was just so excited. And there were just, I don't know, on an average day, maybe 10 people would ask if I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually put on a lot of weight um, just doing IVF. Oh, um, yeah, the drugs are terrible for that, so- aren't they? Yeah, terrible. So, and because it dragged on for a couple of years, that was a couple of years of, of drugs that just made me so bloated. Mm. Um, so I often looked a bit pregnant and very kind people would sort of, you know, pat me on the belly and be like, so are you pregnant now? And I'd be like, no, just fat, just fat. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it was just such a relief and, and it was just so joyful. Um, but yeah. And, and yeah, and anyway, and I ended up, so after that epidural, um, I had a friend from work actually as well um, with me at the hospital all day and we just talked rubbish and had a great day. And then when he decided he didn't want to come out, it was Friday night, it was five o'clock, the obstetrician came in and he said, well, you'll probably be here like this tomorrow and we can take this right up until dinner tomorrow. And I was like, oh, nah, just cut him out. I want dinner. So... <laughs> Uh, that's how he came out um, officially an emergency cesarean because he was actually headbutting my my pelvis but apparently you can do that for quite some time and I didn't care because uh, I had an epidural but it just was right and so yeah he came out at like 5 30 on a Friday night and then I I had dinner because um, <laughs> I, I couldn't eat all day um, and so I was really looking forward to that and it was just such a wonderful wonderful way to give birth I felt Mm. um yeah I wasn't scared and it wasn't a shock it was all I was in so much control and I was so happy they played um music that I picked during the surgery so actually during the cesarean um and so he came out like in a movie you know because he came out to the song that I it was like playing out of my iphone you know really loud you know I love that surgery yeah and it was just, it was, yeah, the best moment of my life. Yeah. And you stayed in hospital for a few days then because you had a C-section? Um, I actually stayed for seven days. Seven, okay. So um, the hospital where I was, um, I think it was six days if you had a cesarean. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to stay for the seventh day because um, he wasn't latching very well. And I mean, I didn't need to stay. They offered and I really liked the food. Um, it was really nice to be so looked after. Yeah. 
And the obstetrician came in um, every second day. The pediatrician came in the alternate days. The nurses were fantastic to me. Um, so, so what hospital was, was it? In case anyone listening is uh, almost yeah. pregnant and wanting to consider the same one. <laughs> so it was. So it's in Adelaide, and I feel like I would be doing it an injustice if I didn't say it in the correct accent, which is right. Burnside. It's Burnside. Burnside Hospital. <laughs> It's a very fancy little hospital called Burnside. But it has um, really good food, so that's important. <laughs> such, well, you stay in a, you've got a king-sized um, bed. So I was in a king-sized bed. My room had a fountain um, on the on the patio. So there's a patio. So um, he was a little bit jaundiced when he was born. And so we would lay down on the um, decking of the patio uh, in the morning and the afternoon, and we would have, I don't know, five meals a day, and uh, it was, yeah, um, they okay. would feed. I was surely that allowed- makes you want a sibling just to go back there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Look, it was. It, it's uh, we've been to hospital a couple of times since then. I can tell you that the hospitals in Adelaide aren't very. Um, they don't match Burnside. Mm. Um, for- <laughs> or anything but like it was just such a beautiful way to start motherhood um I didn't feel stressed at all I didn't feel under pressure with anything really except for feeding him but then they helped me to express um because they had just a wonderful pump and so they would you know showed me how to pump and express and I never felt any pressure to, to do anything really um you know they were literally there when I did my first poop um, there was a nurse in the room um, and I said, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know how long I have to sit here for. And she said, you sit there for as long as you need to. We'll just keep bringing you the baby. So they brought him to breastfeed, I think twice. I sat on that toilet for like five hours. It was a like, long I'm time. I'm going to poo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but they were just so lovely. I, I really felt like that was something that was worth spending money on if you can afford it to go to a private hospital because, I then had the best six months of my life after that. Yeah. And I think it's because the whole thing from the day I met the obstetrician, um, right through to that birth, I just felt so safe and happy and relaxed. And, it, and that, that atmosphere, that vibe, I, was, I was just so full of oxytocin pretty much right up until six months of, mm-hmm. of my son being alive. Like there were still moments when he was crying at 3 a.m., where I was angry but I was just living on a high the rest of the time it was just the best time of my life and you know it was so so good so did you have good support when you went home after you'd been in the hospital or we just yeah so the second um high just helped (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no no so when I when I got home um I actually came home and straight away had my best friend who who lives in Queensland she flew down which was amazing because it was COVID times Mm. and she flew down and she stayed for almost a week. Um, And that was was super fun as well because we just had such a fun time. Um, You know, it felt like we were having just a girls weekend, except there was a a baby joining us. And yeah, I don't know. We ate a lot of Uber and talked a lot of crap. It was wonderful. And so that was the second week. And then after she left, I think I, I had a visitor, someone came over every day for maybe the next three months oh wow and yeah and and sometimes more than one person would want to come over 
and I um, learned very quickly not to let that happen mm-hmm. because it was too much for me. Um, and then that way, um, it meant that someone would pop by on the way home from work, um, or if it was someone's, you know, for some reason someone didn't work on a on a Wednesday, they would say, "Well, I'll come visit you," you know, on Wednesdays, and they wouldn't necessarily come every week. But you know, I had people, and and they weren't long visits. It was just you know an hour here, a couple yeah. hours there, and sometimes we'd go for a walk or to a park or to the shops, sort of thing. But most of the time, um, they would just sort of hold my son, and I would wash my hair or um, you know do, do some jobs that I couldn't do while he was there or while, while I was holding him or yeah. or you know that sort of stuff. But yeah, it was honestly the first. Yeah, the first three months were, were glorious, but the first six months was pretty wonderful uh, until yeah. I had to go back to work, really. <laughs> I was say, and what happened after that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, after, yeah, after that, it got harder. I actually put him into, um, I started him in a family daycare when he was three months old. Mm-hmm. And initially it was just an hour, um, an hour every third, third day, second day-ish. Like it was on a casual basis. Yeah. And it was just, to get him used to being away from me because that really hadn't happened yet at three months, getting him used to being away from me and me accepting not being with him mm-hmm. and just easing myself into that. And then it went from maybe, yeah, being able to drop him off for an hour to two hours to three hours. Um, and then she was really good because she helped me to get him into a schedule from three months. Yeah. And, um, it was, yeah, like having, I mean, she was just a family daycare provider, but sort of like having um, uh, like a, a nurse, you know, who was looking after me um, and teaching me things all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really special. And then I was able to go back to half days of teaching. I'm a teacher. I was able to go back to half days um, from three months um, just occasionally. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of yeah. amped up. And then at six months, I was um, working two or three days a week. Um, was that your intention going into it to go back to work a bit soon or it just worked no, out? It just sort of worked out that way um, because I enjoyed being at school and he actually was thriving at childcare. Mm-hmm. He seemed to, this was a family daycare, so that was just, you know, a, a mum and she had three other kids there and the three other kids um, just loved him when he would get to the door they would all run and kiss him and alo 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 it's and like a real life feel, doll isn't it yay yeah <laughs> but it made me feel really happy for him because yeah I don't have any siblings for him and our house is really quiet and so actually when he would go there that's the most excitement he would get all week you know and it was such wonderful exposure to so many different um, activities that I didn't have the energy or the time or the inclination to do for him. And he was getting that there. So I had no guilt about leaving him there. I always thought, well, you don't have a kid to send them to childcare, but I kind of feel like childcare is the best thing he does. Mm -hmm. You know, he loves it. He, he's a year and a half old now and um, when we, you know, get there, I put him down and most of the time he kind of waves um, 
and walks off and is really happy and sort of says, bye, and that's it. Um, he also goes to a community care place two days a week now. Mm-hmm. So is it family daycare three days a week and community care two days a week? At the community care, he's more reluctant. He doesn't, you know, want to want me to leave um, when I drop him off all the time. But he doesn't cry. He might sort of have a whinge. And the second that he can't see me, you can hear him go, Hika! <laughs> and he just doesn't care. So it's just more of a complaint, like a, you know, it's a different vibe there. Yeah. And he's just whinging. So he kind of goes, eh. And then the second that I'm out of sight, he's like, yeah, and just doesn't care at all. <laughs> it's very cheeky. But, um, yeah, and, yeah, so work just naturally kind of happened more than I thought it would because I enjoy it and I know that he's enjoying going to childcare. So it's great. Win-win. Win-win. So 18 months as life what you thought it would be when you went and started this journey? I thought I would be lonely. Uh, I remember specifically um, saying to a work friend, my birth partner, in fact, this was while I was having my epidural labour, we were planning how I was going to get back on Tinder, you know, and I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to lose this weight. I'm going to get back on Tinder because, you you know, you never know, right? And I should just, you know, I want to keep my, my eyes peeled and I'm going to make it that at least once a fortnight I'm going to go on a date, just a date, you know, just to get out of the house. I can't think of anything worse than going on a date. What a waste of time that would be. Um, I have no interest whatsoever in ever dating again. The thought is mind-blowing. I love nothing more. My son goes to bed at 6 p.m. And I have hours to myself every night, which I thought before I had him that I would be bored and lonely and, and want to go on Tinder. Yeah. No, I mean, if I'm lucky, I get a Netflix Netflix sort of binge, but mostly I tidy up around the house and sometimes I just sit on my phone and play on my phone for an hour. Maybe I, I do some reading or some schoolwork, but never once, not once ever have I thought I'm lonely. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> exhausted and so satisfied and feel like I've crammed in a marathon every day. Yeah. So the the prospect of having to communicate with another human being on a regular basis in the evening, it's horrifying. Yeah. yeah. You can kind of understand why our couple friends seem so much more tired than we are, isn't it? It's because they've got to entertain this other person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that there's another person there to help with the monotony of, of chores, you know, the tidying, the cooking, the putting the bins out. But also there's another person contributing to the accumulation of washing and dishes and Mm -hmm. cooking and someone else holding you accountable, which I hate. Like I like that some nights I just go, I'll stuff this. I'm going to bed at 6 p.m. And I don't have to tell anyone that I'm doing it. Maybe I send my text, a text message to my mom so that she doesn't wake me up with like a, you know, message later in the evening to tell me something's on TV. But yeah not having to be accountable to anyone else you know if something breaks or I decide I don't want to do an activity we just don't do it it's Mm -hmm. so um liberating yeah and which is why the life you always wanted that you didn't realize was how you got it yeah (laughs) 
Totally. And that's why I look at 25, this is what I should have been doing. I'm, I don't think I should have done IVF at 25 because I think there was still a lot of things I, I want. I did some more travel between 25 and, and 30, 35, you know, but there was some, still some things I wanted to tick off my list. Yeah. But, but definitely at 30, when I started to feel like I was scraping the bottom of, of the barrel with men, uh, it was about the time I got married, um, definitely then I should have just gone, you know what, I'm not good with relationships. I don't like sharing a house with a man. I don't like compromising with a man. I should just do this on my own. But I, I truly just didn't know it existed, but it would have been perfect. This is the life I was always meant to live. <laughs> I can't wait for people to hear your story and they're just like, oh, that's that's the life I want. They'll be able to imagine it from how you've described it. And I was like, oh, definitely doing it. It's it's just so, so, so good. It's so, um, like, I never, I never, I never feel lonely. I never feel frustrated with anyone in my personal life. I definitely feel frustrated with work things. I always mm-hmm. felt frustrated with work things, but no one lets me down. Anytime someone helps me, my neighbors who are fantastic or my friends, I actually just get really emotional and think, gosh, I've got good friends. Gosh, my family are great. Isn't this lovely how we're all doing these wonderful things? I just feel like I'm such, such a member of a community. But whenever I've been in a relationship, all I feel is let down. Even if I shouldn't feel that way, it's just how I feel. I always feel like I'm doing more than the other person. I always feel like they're not fulfilling my needs. And the reality was I wasn't fulfilling my needs because I was expecting someone else to do it for me. Um, And so that is on me, you know, that I'm not good at having a, a romantic relationship. But I knew that a decade ago. <laughs> so... <laughs> That should have been the turning point. But, yeah, I just didn't know this existed. And now you've got your beautiful little Alice. So yeah. apart from starting earlier, do you think there's anything that you would do differently or advice that you would give anyone who's considering this? Um, yes. So something that I, I feel confident about that makes my experience more easier easier than I think some of my lovely friends who who have a partner is that um, the day-to-day stuff I get on top of before it becomes a problem mm-hmm. because I know that it can't snowball so for example I have a wonderful friend who um, like many people toilet training was just it's hard you know super hard and I, I was present at her house for lots of different situations where it was just upsetting and it's expensive when you've got an older child using nappies um, and it's upsetting for the kid. There's all these problems. But because I could see that I was not going to do well personally, that if I had an older child and I was having toileting problems, for example, that I was going to be really frustrated by that and there was not going to be anyone to help me or relieve me or tag team me when I was getting angry, Um, I got onto that when my son was 12 months old. So at 12 months old, just after we had a bath, I started dumping him on a uh, potty. Mm -hmm. And just coincidentally, sometimes poo would come out and he seemed to enjoy it. And so then I started putting the little 
potty seat on a toilet. And I've now got an 18 month old who when he wants to do a poo bashes on the toilet door. Um, you know, he's not toilet trained in this. He doesn't, he can't talk. He, yeah. um, I mean, apart from, you know, dog and train and mum, he doesn't really say much, just makes a lot of noise. But, but he definitely knows when poo is coming and he goes and he bashes on the toilet door. And most of the time he does a poo in the morning or the afternoon because that's when we sit on the toilet, you know, and we read books on the toilet. Um, and so things like that, that I think that if I was in a relationship, I would have just let those things happen, mm-hmm. you know, naturally. Um, but like, yeah, he sleeps 6 p.m. till 6 a.m. Um, and I know that I would never have established routines and been as um, structured if I had a man. I just wouldn't because I wouldn't want to control the other person. I mean, I would want to, but I would fail. And so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, knowing that I have to do all this on my own has made me a way better parent because I can't blame anyone else for any of the problems. So everything that we do, I'm super proactive about. My son's never disliked being in the bath, never disliked being in the car, um, never had any eating issues um, or, or sleeping issues outside of being sick um, yeah. and having, you know, problems with that. But and, and it's not because he's, I mean, I love him, but he's no genius. Um, he's just a normal human. And I'm definitely not doing anything magical, but I am nervous about problems and knowing that I won't be able to deal with them mm-hmm. as well. So I get, I'm more proactive and I just get ahead of the problem. And so I think that when you know that you are going to be alone for so much of this journey, and ultimately, you are the only person responsible. I think that the, that something you can do is to just be more proactive with, like, I have a robot vacuum because I knew that I was going to hate vacuuming a million times a day. So I got a robot vacuum. I'm and fully I, in the robot cult as well. I love yeah. it. Best thing you I know, did. And, yeah, and, and, like, just little things like that that just are time-saving things you know in the car I had like a little cat toy that I dangled in front of him the second he would cry I would dangle this cat toy um and then got different things that I stuck around the car so that he could look at things just because I knew that if I'm doing all the driving by myself and I can't ever have someone sit in the back seat with him really um I cannot let this child cry while we're driving and and so I just got ahead of it and he still had moments but I feel like I just got ahead of the problems in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. because I knew I couldn't cope on my own if those problems became bigger. There's some really great inspiration and ideas in there for anyone listening whether they've got a kid or not. Um, (laughs) I think I'm, I'm the same as you and I've I feel like I get so much more done in a day now that I have Lexi than what I did when it was just me and work and whatever I wanted to do in my own free time because totally. I'm just conscious of I need to be organised and a lot more self-aware and when things are coming up that are going to be a bit more out of routine and having things in place to make it easier, like meals prepped or light and easy or whatever else so that I don't have to think about the cooking side of it to make life easier. So, yeah. Absolutely. And, and I would like to think that if I'd partnered up with a man to have a baby that I would be like that, but I know I wouldn't. I know I would be lax and then I would be like, 
saying things to the man like why didn't you cook dinner tonight and Mm -hmm. we'd be just standing there yelling at each other and not cooking dinner yeah Uh, and I'd be resenting someone but I never resent myself if I haven't cooked dinner then we have takeaway or a frozen meal and I'm really happy with that um whereas in the exact same scenario with another person I would be frustrated (laughs) so yeah it's yeah having the frozen meals is important like you've got to have them in the freezer sure mm. you've got to prepare them or or buy them but um but yeah being being that proactive and being organized ahead of time everyone should do it but i think that when there's a man that you can sort of send out to the shops or you can go out to the shop and there's a man who can stay with the baby i think you don't have to be as organized mm. so you're not which is normal which is what i would have done yeah but it's not how it happened. Well, thank you. This has been an amazing chat and it's just, I don't know, validated a lot of the things that I am like as well that didn't really con- <laughs> think about as much until I've had the conversation with you. So I'm sure lots of other people listening oh. to it will, that already have the, um, a child through being a solo mum by choice will be thinking the same as well. So very clearly, nicely articulated uh, the benefits. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say to anyone listening before we wrap up? No. Good luck. It's the best thing I've ever done, ever. It's amazing. You'll love it. Thank you so much. I'm Alicia, and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.